We sedate our critically ill patients and confine them to bed rest when we bring them into the ICU. What long-term physical and psychological consequences result from this practice, and how can we prevent them? You are listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals, and welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and with me today to discuss preventing ICU post-traumatic stress disorder is Dr. Dale Needham, Assistant Professor in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at Johns Hopkins University. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Needham. You're very welcome. Thank you. Now, certainly when somebody is discharged from the ICU, they have whatever residual there is from their MI or their pneumonia, whatever the admitting diagnosis is that brought them into the ICU. But are there other things that we see post-discharge that we should be aware of? There are many, many complications that we're learning about for patients that have been critically ill in the ICU. Many of the diseases that patients have in the intensive care unit, something like acute respiratory distress syndrome, for instance, is really a systemic process where inflammation is widespread throughout the body. And we, in fact, see very few organ systems that are unscathed in survivors of critical illness, particularly those that are especially sick and in the intensive care unit for longer periods of time. If I were to sort of think from head to toe, we know that, for example, roughly about 50% of ARDS survivors have important cognitive impairments still at one and perhaps at two years after leaving the intensive care unit. These survivors also have a relatively high prevalence of things like post-traumatic stress disorder and depression. Some relatively recent research that we've done that were systematic reviews of the literature in populations of general ICU survivors. For example, we found that the median point prevalence of PTSD symptoms in general ICU survivors was 22%. And similarly, with depressive symptoms, it was 28%. So relatively common symptoms of mental health that survivors face. When we also look at their nerves and muscles, we see that weakness after being in the ICU is quite common and may, may have a prevalence of somewhere between one quarter and one third of of ICU survivors will have weakness. And in some patients, that weakness may be very prolonged, can last literally for years after they leave the intensive care unit. Beyond what you might expect for someone else at at bed rest in a non-ICU setting. That's what we would think. We certainly know that healthy, well-nourished individuals, if they're put to bed, they lose, you know, on average, maybe 4 to 5% of their muscle strength. Certainly, our patients coming into the intensive care unit may be frail to start with, are frequently malnourished in the ICU and have critical illness on top of that. So that's why we expect to see a much higher prevalence of muscle weakness after patients leave the intensive care unit got a, a number of emotional, uh, psychological think, fallout, if you will, as well as the neuromuscular weakness. Are there other things that are seen? Well, patients may also, of course, have, have some things that may be a little bit more obvious. I've picked issues with the brain and issues with the muscle because that's what many physicians commonly aren't aware of. But of course, we see acute renal failure very commonly in the intensive care setting. And at least some of our patients who have no kidney issues prior to coming into the intensive care unit are on dialysis when they leave the intensive care unit. So that would be a relatively common dysfunction that that many doctors would certainly appreciate. But what I hear my patients when they come back for their research follow-up visits telling me is that my doctor doesn't know anything about how my weakness or my mental health issues or my cognitive issues are related to my ICU stay. And what I assure them of is, in fact, these are very common while I've been in the intensive care unit. 
But we know if we think about nutrition, for instance, and this ties into the the muscle weakness, we know uh, among, for example, ARDS patients that on average, these patients lose 18% of their body mass while they're in the intensive care unit. And it may take over a year for them to regain their body weight. And we believe that most of this loss of body weight is a loss of lean muscle mass. And in fact, there's some preliminary evidence showing that even as these survivors regain body mass, after they leave the ICU, they're preferentially regaining fat rather than lean muscle mass. And that's why, for instance, when I look at some of my patients, even my young patients who were athletes before they were critically ill, completely healthy athletes that, for example, got severe infection, some of these at at one, two, or three years after their ICU stay may not have the same muscle strength as before they were in the intensive care unit. Boy, that is really impressive to me, amazing to me that the duration of the effects from a stay in the ICU can be so prolonged. Absolutely. In one of my NIH-funded research studies, we're following ARDS survivors, and the follow-up period's just been extended so that we follow up at three, four, and five years. I'm just having some of my my research patients come back for three- and four-year visits, and, you know, one research patient that came back for his four-year visit told me that his muscle strength was still improving between three and four years. Or in other words, he still had residual muscle weakness, he believed, at three years and was still noticing improvements. He also told me that his depression, even at three or four years afterwards, got so severe, in fact, the worst that it had been between his three and four-year visit, he was contemplating suicide. So we see prolonged and severe sequelae in, in some patients. And obviously much longer than if that young athlete had an injury on the field and was just on the bench for a period of time. Do we understand any of the mechanisms why this is so difficult and so prolonged? The mechanisms, of course, are are multifactorial, but it would be great to try to talk about some of our thoughts. If we look at muscle weakness, for instance, we think that there's likely a combination of damage to the muscles from simply patients having bed rest from that muscle atrophy that happens. You know, if we take those healthy, well-nourished individuals, and there's lots and lots of research using those kinds of subjects through aerospace research, you know, trying to understand how weightlessness affects astronauts, they do experiments of healthy, well-nourished individuals by just giving them bed rest, having them, they're in a gravity situation, but having them lay flat. And we know that muscle atrophy and weakness results there. But when you add critical illness on top of this, the inflammatory process can lead to what's often called critical illness polyneuropathy or critical illness myopathy or critical illness neuromuscular abnormalities, which is direct damage from critical illness to nerves and muscles, which also can compound the muscle atrophy that virtually all patients likely face in the ICU. If we think about mental health symptoms, particularly if we think about cognition, there's not a lot of strong leads to tell us for sure about cause and effect, but there is some research that helps us understand that perhaps hypoxemia, perhaps hypotension and inflammation may contribute to this, but the existing research isn't showing signals that are quite as strong as we might expect just using our our general kind of medical thought process. If we look at at some of the psychiatric symptoms like depression and post-traumatic stress disorder, we see that things like delirium or certainly the delusional memories and the hallucinations that patients still recall from when they're in the intensive care unit, those appear to be linked to these mental health symptoms. Delirium, you know, or ICU psychosis as it's sometimes called, is very, very common when patients are in the intensive care unit. And when we have patients come back to see us 
and ask them to describe their memories of the ICU. You know, one group of patients have complete amnesia. Another group of patients may have some real memories of being suctioned or the endotracheal tube, but another group of patients have absolutely horrific hallucinations and delusions. Some of the most common hallucinations and delusions would include delusions of patients believing that nurses and doctors are trying to kill them or rape them. Some of the, the hallucinations may include seeing rats on the floor, seeing blood pouring down the walls. These are actually quite common. So I think it's quite easy to understand how delirium may be linked to something like post-traumatic stress disorder. And certainly the best signals around modifiable risk factors for delirium in the ICU would be the sedatives and narcotics that we give to patients. Continuous infusions of benzodiazepines and even narcotics are clearly associated with delirium. And these sedatives are also directly associated with depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. And we think probably that causal link in the middle is probably delirium that links these sedatives to the negative mental health outcomes. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and with me is Dr. Dale Needham, Assistant Professor in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at Johns Hopkins University, and we are discussing... ICU post-traumatic stress disorder and how to prevent it. Dr. Needham, you mentioned higher, more continuous use of benzodiazepines, the delusional memories. Are there other risk factors associated with development of this post-traumatic syndrome? Well, certainly we also appreciate that patients that may have mental health symptoms before they come into hospital are at greater risk of having those symptoms worsened after they leave hospital. So that's also a very important factor. I talked about delirium and I talked about the role of sedatives, but we also are beginning to believe that even patients that have complete amnesia might be more at risk. And in fact, what might be most protective is having real memories of the ICU, even if they're memories of noxious stimuli like being suctioned, that may actually be protective for something like post-traumatic stress disorder. Very interesting. And, and I saw in some of your papers that the actual severity of the illness does not necessarily correlate with the development of these symptoms. Absolutely. If we look at post-traumatic stress disorder, there is no association in numerous studies between measures of severity of illness, things like the Apache score and post-traumatic stress disorder. Those things do not appear to be, to be associated, which is a little bit counterintuitive, but certainly the evidence shows that time and time again. You know, some other risk factors for PTSD in the general population also hold in the intensive care unit in that women appear to be at greater risk than men and younger people appear to be at greater risk than older people for post-traumatic stress disorder. So how can we address this and tell us a little about your exciting work with getting these ICU patients up and mobilized? There's one approach that helps both the brain and the body, especially the nerves and muscles. See, the approach that we've adopted in the medical intensive care unit that I work in at Johns Hopkins is trying to have patients start waking up and moving in the ICU. So what I mean more specifically is that we have dramatically reduced the use of sedative agents in the ICU. And what we've learned through this is that we are often misperceiving the amount of medications that patients need to get to be comfortable. So what we've done in many, many of our patients is no longer have them on continuous infusions of benzodiazepines and narcotics, and in fact have our patients awake and alert in the ICU getting PRN bolus doses of these medications when the patient actually needs it. 
many of us think that must be impossible to be able to tolerate an endotracheal tube and be awake. That's certainly what almost all the clinicians in my ICU thought. But when we actually started doing that, we found that, in fact, our dogma was incorrect. We have patients, even with ARDS, some patients with ARDS on low tidal volume ventilation who are able to be awake, alert, and sitting in a chair. We're talking about severely ill patients. And once we begin to have patients awake and alert, they then can participate in physical rehabilitation. We have a, an early physical medicine rehabilitation program in the medical ICU at Johns Hopkins. I'm the medical director of that program. And what we do is once these patients are awake and alert, we begin to give them progressive physical rehabilitation to the point that we may have patients within a few days of entering the ICU who are awake, alert, out of bed and walking laps around the intensive care unit despite being on a ventilator via an oral endotracheal tube. We've had patients with PEEP of 10, 12, 14 concentrations of oxygen of 60, 70% up and out of bed and walking around the intensive care unit. And I imagine this takes a lot of manpower to assist the patients. And is this something that you think is practical to implement more widely? Well, that was certainly one of our concerns as well. Is this practical to do? We did some work in this area and found that it appears that length of stay is shorter when we take this approach with patients, which has our hospital administrators interested in this area and interested potentially in investing in additional staffing if it can reduce length of stay and improve patient outcomes. But what else we've actually done is I spent a year working with a group of biomedical engineering students to say we need to make this process more efficient, safer, and more effective. And we designed a couple of devices. We designed what looks like a large IV pole, except on this IV pole, it has the intravenous bags, it has the infusion pump, it has a cardiac monitor, it has a portable ventilator. We also designed a new type of walker, which actually has a seat built right into it. And through these approaches, we're able to reduce the staffing we need, need it to ambulate a mechanically ventilated patients from four staff down to two staff, which certainly makes the process more feasible. Also, some of the things that we're talking about, as far as even just doing exercises with patient in bed, having them sit on the side of the bed, having them stand and march and sit out of bed in a chair, that's something that's done with only a single staff member, with a, with a physical therapist, without the need for a nurse or a respiratory therapist. So there's many things that can be done with only a single staff member if we have a multidisciplinary team supporting it. Well, I'd very much like to thank my guest today from Johns Hopkins University, Dr. Dale Needham. He's been talking to us about the entity of post-traumatic stress disorder in ICU patients and how to prevent it. This has been the Clinician's Roundtable from ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD, online, on demand, and on air. Please visit us at ReachMD.com, and thank you for listening.